The year is 1820. And Mercy gave birth to her one and only child. Just six weeks later, because of an eye infection, a mild eye infection, they sought medical help. The doctor in their town in New York was gone. There was another man, however, who stepped forward, presenting himself to be a doctor. He recommended a salve of hot mustard that be applied to the young girl's eyes. Sadly, his prescription did the opposite effect. It did not heal the little girl's eyes. It made her blind, permanently blind. Four months after that, Mercy's husband died, and now at 21 years of age, she was a widow with a blind daughter. Her mother, by the name of Grace, stepped in and helped her daughter raise her daughter. Grace spent an enormous amount of time with this girl and wanted to to impart the, the truths of Scripture to this young, blind girl. Oh, when that happened. For hours, Grace would read the Scriptures to her granddaughter. And that little girl memorized up up to five chapters of the scriptures every week. She memorized the entire Pentateuch, all of the Gospels, the book of Proverbs. She was hungry for spiritual truth. She had a love for music. She learned how to sing. She learned to play the piano, the organ, the guitar, the harp, among other instruments. At 14 years of age, she learned about a new school in New York City called New York Institute for the Blind. It was to become her home for 23 years, 12 years as a student, 11 years as a teacher. At 30 years of, 38 years of age, she married one of her former students a man by the name of Alexander Van Alstine. He himself was blind. Yet he was considered to be New York's finest organist. He put to music some of his wife's poetry. This woman's name was Francis Van Alstine. More than anything else, she was a prolific poet. At the Institute, she was called the Blind Poetess. Soon after they were married, she became pregnant, and she gave birth to her one and only child, who died shortly after birth. The resulting depression dogged her. But she didn't let her blindness nor her grief, having lost a child, to dissuade her from her task. She was a writer. She was a writer of poetry. She was a writer specifically of hymns. She didn't put much of her poetry to music. She let other people do that. She had other publishers that were working with her to publish her work, and she had many other musicians that put her music, put her words to music. Sometimes she wrote six to seven hymns a day. On one occasion, musician William Doan dropped by her home for a surprise visit. He begged her for some words to a tune he had recently witnessed or or written that he was to perform at an upcoming upcoming Sunday school convention. 
The only problem was he had a train to catch that was leaving in 35 minutes. He sat down at the piano and played the tune for her. She said to him, your music says safe in the arms of Jesus. And there she sat scribbling the words to that hymn. She handed it to William and she said, read it on the train. Hurry. You don't want to be late for your train. All tallied up after almost 95 years of life. This woman penned over 9,000 hymns. Safe in the arms of Jesus may be one of her most notable ones. I am thine, O Lord. To God be the glory. Blessed assurance. Tell me the story of Jesus. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. You know this woman by her maiden name. What is it? Fanny Crosby. She was not broken by her blindness, nor was she broken by her grief. These drove her to the Savior, drove her to her mission, her calling. If you know her music well, you, you have already noted that much of it is evangelistic in nature. She wanted others to see the Jesus she saw. She saw with the eyes of faith. This morning we are looking at John chapter 9. And we find there the story of a man who was born blind. At the time of his meeting Jesus, he didn't know Jesus. He didn't have a grandma grace to point him to the Savior. But Jesus met him and revealed himself to him. And to this blind man, light dawned. And he saw, not only with his physical eyes, but he saw with his spiritual eyes. John chapter 9 is our text this morning. As you look at the beginning verses of that chapter, you, you will notice in verse 2, question. A question posed by the disciples of Jesus. And it's that question that demands an explanation. And for the next few minutes, I would like to offer an excursus. I have titled it, I Experience Bad. And what I mean by that is though the circumstances will be different for each of us, every one of us have had those kinds of experiences that we would label as terrible, horrible, no good, and very bad. When I was in the fifth grade, over the span of four months, I ended up in the hospital three times with varying unrelated difficulties. Two of those were surgeries. I remember when the doctors told me that I had to go back in the hospital for a different kind of surgery, how overwhelmed I was at the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad situation I was living in. And I asked myself the question, that ubiquitous question that we all ask when we go through those kinds of bad circumstances. Why? Why, why me? Why now? Why this? Very frequently, there's not an answer to that question. Oh, and yet we press because we want an answer. Oftentimes, we'll make one up. And frequently, we make one up that 
falls in the category of the question that the disciples asked Jesus when they saw this blind beggar, blind from birth. Why? Why did it happen? Well, let me, let me explore a few things here before we get into our text. Sometimes I experience bad because of bad people. It's undeserved. It's not something that I have done that caused this. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, his, his final letter, he says this at chapter 4. He's wrapping up his letter and he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Two verses later in verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. These are people in the church. Alexander's in the church. All these people could have supported Paul through the trials that he went through, the, uh, the, uh, the examinations by, uh, by, the, by the, the civil leaders, but they walked out on him. They abandoned him. Sometimes we experience bad things because of bad people. We could look at the prophets. The, um, almost to a man. Uh, God's, God's prophets were persecuted. Sometimes they yielded up their life because they were seeking to be faithful to God's words. Uh, and then we've got Jesus. <laughs> now, in, in, in a general sense, a very general sense, we can, we can say that all suffering is a result of sin. Romans chapter 8. But is the sin, I'm sorry, but is the suffering, the difficulty, the affliction I am experiencing a direct result of sin? Not necessarily. Jesus. Oh, he who is perfect in every way. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2. You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. No one like Jesus has been afflicted with suffering in an undeserved, unjustified manner. Well, well sometimes uh, the, the, the bad things, the difficult, the horrible, nor good, very bad things that come into our life come as a result of our good God. Wait a minute, the skeptic says. You Christians keep saying that God is all-powerful. He, he can do anything. Well, if he can do anything and yet does not remove pain, suffering, evil from this world, he cannot be good. Well, their, characteris- their, their characterization of God is skewed. They have made God in their own image. The God of the Bible is indeed all-powerful, and he is indeed all-good. How do we understand some of the problems, the difficulties that come and afflict our life? Those things that are undeserved. Think about Paul. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about his, his, uh, uh, chapter 12 rather, he talks about his thorn in the flesh. Why did God give Paul that thorn in the flesh? Paul tells us why. God revealed to Paul why. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations to keep me from exalting myself. 
there was given me a thorn in the flesh. So it was a gracious act, a good and kind thing that God did to the Apostle Paul by giving him this thorn of affliction. Paul didn't deserve that. It wasn't a result of punishment. But God gave it to him knowing who Paul was, knowing what Paul needed or what he didn't need. He needed that thorn in the flesh to keep him looking unto himself. Look with me over at uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says, It is for discipline that you endure. God, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God disciplines his people. So sometimes we can experience suffering, difficulty, affliction, hardship. We don't know why, but it may be in order to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. Turn with me over to the first, no, the fourth chapter of the book of Amos. Minor prophet, not minor because he's unimportant or, uh, or, or insignificant, but minor because his words are shorter in length than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Amos chapter 4, verse 6. God writes, speaks through his prophet. I gave you cleanness of teeth. Think about that image. I gave you cleanness of teeth. What does that mean? They didn't have any food. They didn't have anything to eat. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet, you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water. But you would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, with a caterpillar um, um, devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. God brought all these terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things into the lives of his people. Why? In order to cause them to return to the Lord. But they said, nothing doing. We're not doing that. As a result, the discipline of the Lord turned to punishment. Segue to the next half of our chart. Sometimes I experience the bad. Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things. Because I deserve it. Because my sin is demanding punishment. Think of Miriam. She groused, complained against her little brother Moses. And as a result, she was instantly made a leprous. Think of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. They both independently lied to the Holy Spirit. And what happened to them? 
instantly they were slain. Think of uh, the church in Corinth. There were many who abused the Lord's Supper. And Paul wrote in um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. He who eats and drinks uh, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are sick and weak and a number sleep. A euphemism for death. There are those occasions where God will exact punishment for our sin instantly, but not usually. He usually does not exact punishment immediately. The story is told of an atheist farmer who taunted and made fun of Christians because they believed in God and went to worship on Sundays. So he wrote this letter to the editor of the paper. I plowed on Sunday, planted on Sunday, cultivated on Sunday, hauled my crops in on Sunday, but I never went to church on Sunday. Yet I harvested more bushels per acre than anyone else, even those who are God-fearing and never miss a service. The editor of the paper printed the man's letter and then added this remark. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. Indeed, he does not. Scripture tells us very plainly that there is coming a day, a day of judgment. Old Testament calls it the day of the Lord. And that time is coming where every deed, every thought, every motivation, every word coming out of my mouth will be presented to the Lord and it will be evaluated. Now, there's going to be something different happens for believers because of Christ than for unbelievers. But that day is coming. But the sin, or the suffering and the difficulty, the affliction that I experience today is not necessarily connected directly to my sin. Maybe, but it may not be. Fourth, I might experience bad things, deserve things, or so I perceive, because of other people's sin. Now, I'm not saying this um, because this is scriptural truth. I am saying this, and and this fourth point is here, um, because this is often what people think, and certainly what the disciples in our text this morning thought. A lot of it comes, a lot of this thinking comes from um, uh, the book of Exodus, Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter, um, chapter 20, verse 5 reads this way. Um, uh, you shall not make for yourself for an idol or a likeness. Um, you, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations. And so there are some people who say that the suffering and the affliction that I experience is a generational sin. I am being punished so they say, because of what my parents or my grandparents have done. Well, there's not any of us that would deny the fact that there um, are those occasions where uh, the waves of judgment will splash up and get people wet that aren't directly on the beach. a pregnant mom who abuses uh, drugs, alcohol, for example, can detrimentally affect the health of her child in womb. 
We know that to be the case. Is, is the, the, those deleterious effects, whatever they might be, uh, uh, that the child suffers, are, are those punishments for the child? No, no. No, the child's not, not being punished, but there is the backwash, uh, the overflow, the, um, the unintended consequences of sin that may be experienced by other people. This is what the scriptures teach us regarding personal sin. I mean, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 reads this way. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the, sins of, for the son's iniquity. The righteous The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. That's what Scripture teaches about the sins of others. I may experience the backwash of somebody else's behavior, but I'm not going to be punished for somebody else. Um, uh, there, There is one exception, however, only one exception, and that's the Lord Jesus. When he died, he died the most foul, the most polluted sinner ever. Not because he himself was a sinner, but on his shoulders was placed the sins of the world. He died in the place of those who would believe. And all of those sins were piled on Jesus. Only then was the sins of others fleshed out in punishment on one who did not deserve it. All right. Um, I'm, I'm done with, with our excursus. Now I'm ready to start preaching. I want you to look with me at our text in John chapter 9. We're, 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 this, this whole chapter is one big unit, but uh, I, I'd be keeping you here for days if we, had to, if we were going to deal with all of it all at one time. So this morning we're just going to start. We're going to introduce and, and see Jesus working in this man's life. We'll just read the first 12 verses. Follow along with me as I read. John chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and he made clay with the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, well, then were your eyes open? He answered, the one who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. 
They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Second page of your notes, I divided this text into four points. Point number one, the crisis. Um, we, we don't know exactly when this took place. Uh, there's no time or date stamped here. We know that um, chapter 7 and 8 took place um, at the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall of the year, the harvest feast, six months before Jesus' crucifixion. Probably it happened soon after that, soon after that feast concluded, but we don't know that for sure. We do know in verse 9, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, that Jesus sees this man, He's blind from birth. And he either says something or he begins approaching that man and that prompts a question by the disciples. And the disciples ask this, Rabbi, this is what we learned in Sunday school and um, we want to know what you think. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind. This is called in theological language. Did I already shut that off? Oh, you shut it off. That's okay. Let's leave it off. Leave it off. It's called in theological language the retribution dogma. And the retribution dogma is classically found in the life of Job. The retribution dogma says there is a direct one-for-one correlation between your suffering and your sin. The degree of your suffering is an indication of the degree of your sin. Hence, the so-called friends of Job come to Job and say, Man, you have been going through some terrible, no good, very bad things, Job. You have lost your family, all of your children. You've lost your wealth. It's gone. You have lost your reputation. Job, you have obviously sinned greatly to have suffered greatly. My friends, that thinking, as flawed as it is, has been around for a long time. The book of Job probably was the first book written from the Bible. It it took place during the, the, the days of the patriarchs, like Abraham. At least since then, for millennia, maybe, we have had this kind of thinking. There's a, there's a one-to-one correlation. I'm suffering. I'm going through this difficulty. I have this affliction that has been placed upon me, something undesirable, unwanted. What did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Well, maybe Nothing. The retribution dogma says, this man, blind from birth, had to sin, or his parents sinned, that made him blind. And he is suffering the consequences. He is suffering the punishment. Let's think about this for just a minute. Um, uh, uh, Logically, um, this is uh, what we would call the, uh, um, the fallacy of the false dilemma, or the either-or fallacy. And the either-or fallacy says it has to be A or it has to be B. There's no other option. Well, you can, cho- you can paint your house blue or you can paint your house red. Well, the either-or fallacy says um, it's got to be one or the other. It can't be anything else. 
And yet we all know that there's other colors like purple, yellow, taupe. We, we can paint our house all kinds of colors. Well, this, this, this works its way into um, a theological trap by assuming that, that this man had to sin before he was born or his parents sin and he is being punished for their sin. The rabbis said that it is possible for a child to sin before birth. And they go back to Genesis chapter 25 where Esau and Jacob struggled in their mother's womb and the rabbis called that sin. All right? Um, to, to say that um, the parents sinned and this man born blind is enduring the punishment his parents rightly deserve goes against Scripture. And it, and it goes against everything that we, we would call fair and just and right. Jesus said this, verse 3, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes the goodness of God is displayed in the affliction and the difficulty, the pain, the suffering that we endure not because we deserve it, but because he seeks to use that for his glory. He wants to suck all of the glory out of even our most difficult circumstances. Point number two, the calling. Now Jesus knew what he was going to do in this blind man's life. And he uses that as a, um, a, a shoehorn, if you will, to urge his disciples and his people even today to be about what he is doing even in this blind man's life. Look at verse 4 with me. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the second time in the scope of just two chapters where Jesus has repeated this, this line. I am the light of the world. Remember in chapter 12, um, ch chapter 8, verse 12, uh, when we were there in, in uh, um, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago now, I described uh, the Feast of Tabernacles as it was um, uh, used by the first century Jews as a, a tool to teach the people um, what they endured leaving Egypt and how God graciously and abundantly provided for them. You, you, you may remember that one of the things that the Jews did in anticipation of the Feast of Tabernacles was to, array, was, was to erect four ginormous candelabras in the temple on opposite walls. They were, they were so tall that when they were lit, they, the, the light went above the walls of the temple and lit, lit up the entire city of Jerusalem. Remember that each one of those, those lamps had, had a, a trough of 27 gallons of olive oil filled daily in order to keep these lights burning day and night throughout that week-long feast. 
as we looked at chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world for the first time, it was on the last day of the feast when they were extinguishing the lights, when they were taking down the candelabras, when Jerusalem would now be black at night because the light had been removed. It was then that Jesus declared of himself, I am the light of the world. And here he says it again. Not because the city is dark, but because this one blind beggar's world is dark. And Jesus is just about ready to do something. Before we get there, let's go back to verse 4. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. Night is coming. I think that's a reference to the fact that Jesus is going to be leaving planet Earth. And while there is daylight, while there is time, while the light is here, we must be about the work of God. What Jesus is going to do to this man, bringing light into his body and into his soul, we're going to have to wait till the end of the chapter to see that, as Jesus brings light into this darkened man's life. That's our calling. That's who we are as people. That's why we have been left here on planet Earth. To be, to, to be that voice that, that directs people to the Savior. That directs people to where they can find the light. In Peter's first epistle, he, he uses these words to describe our calling. He says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have the privilege of proclaiming the excellencies of the light. Before Jesus does anything to this man, he wants to put that in the minds of his disciples. Gentlemen, this is why you are here. This is what we are about. We are about doing the works of God while we are able. There's a sense of urgency here. There's a sense of, of oughtness, a sense of privilege, a sense of of, of, of awe and of wonder of what God's going to do when the light invades a dark place. Point number three. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent, so he went him away so he went away and washed and he, he came back seeing. Those two verses I just read raise a, a, a whole host of questions. Like um, why did why did he spit and, and 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 why did he make mud with his spittle? And and and, and why did he stick it on the guy's eyes? And and why did he why did, he, why did he say you had to go to a specific place in order to wash it off and see? Now, we know from Scripture that, that Jesus heals people in a variety of ways. Sometimes people don't even have to, have, don't have to be close to him. But, you know, he heals them instantly from afar. Sometimes Jesus heals people as he touches them or as they touch the robe of his cloak. Sometimes Jesus heals people with his spit. This isn't the only time that we read this. We, we read of another example where, where um, uh, a deaf man, a deaf man, comes to Jesus and he is obviously um, 
uh, slow of speech, shall we say. So Jesus licks his finger, puts spittle on his finger, and he touches the deaf man's tongue. Not his ears, his tongue. But in so doing, his hearing is restored. And so is his speech. Here, Jesus mixes his spittle with dirt, makes mud. Now, we, we can, there's all kinds of, of theories. Um, I read too many of them this week. Of, of why Jesus used his spittle and mud, and, and, and there are some that says, well, it was, it was um, a part of uh, um, Greek thinking and part of their worldview that, that human saliva had healing power in it. And some Bible teachers think, well, Jesus is... is um, is declaring he is greater than the Greek physicians who used human saliva. Right? Um, there, there are some that point to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where, where God formed man from the dust of the earth. And they said, um, well, well uh, Jesus put this mud pack on the man's eyes creating eyes that never formed while he was in the womb. We really don't know why Jesus used saliva to make mud with the dust and he put it on the guy's eyes. But, but all, this, um, all these questions might have some answer in what John does tell us. He says this. Uh, Jesus, Jesus says, go wash in the pool in Siloam. And, and John adds this commentary. He translates it for us. He says, which is translated sent. Okay, Bob, I'm going to need my computer again. All right, now I, I need to give you um, a, a little bit of, of, uh, of history here. And oops, and geography. By the way, I, I have copies of this so that it's a little bigger with all the scripture references available for you right up here if you find that helpful. All right, here, let me, let me paint this picture of Jerusalem for you. The temple stands on Mount Moriah. And the ancient city of Jerusalem is from north-south, downhill. To the east of the city is the Kidron Valley, and then from there you find the Mount of Olives. Here's a picture of the Kidron Valley. Now, uh, you'll, you'll see a little piece of the Temple Mount, uh, which now occupied by the Muslims, on the far left-hand side of that, that picture, uh, you find the Mount of Olives here on the, on the, on the right. Kidron Valley is, is here. Um, it used to be a very deep valley. It's more accurately called uh, the Kidron Ravine rather than the Kidron Valley. Um, now, th- this, this is a photo looking north. As you go south, the, the Kidron Valley gets, gets, uh, gets deeper. Th- this is, this is a... a a rather steep hillside um, on, uh, fr- from, the, from the, uh, the, the city of Jerusalem uh, proper into the Kidron Valley. Now, from, from the Kidron Valley, there flows the Gion Springs, so, the springs that come out of uh, Mount Moriah and uh, empty into, to the east, into the Kidron Valley. In the um, about 701 BC, the Assyrians come into Israel in order to conquer Israel, and um, 
as they were threatening the people of Judah, King Hezekiah said, now wait a minute, let's think about this. They had a walled city, roughly where you see this, this part on the, on, the, on the far left side. That, that, that was where the walls of the city would have, would have uh, gone up. And yet the, the water from uh, the Gion Spring w- would have flowed east outside of the city. And Hezekiah said, wait a minute, let's think about this. We don't want to make it easy for our enemy to gain access to water. We need to somehow keep this water in the city. So he brought his engineers together, Jerusalem Water Authority. And these engineers figured out how to keep the Gion Springs inside the city. And so they dug a tunnel underneath the city through the limestone. One group started from the north, one group started from the south, and they met in the middle. How they did that in the 8th century B.C., I have no idea. Boy, do I want to know. If you have opportunity to go, you got to walk through it. This is Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, they captured all of this water. Where did it go? It went to a place called Siloam, which being translated from Hebrew into Greek into English means sent. The, the water from the, the, the head of the spring was sent to the pool called sent. It was, called, it was, it was directed to Siloam at the southeast end of the pool. Remember, that's where at the Feast of Tabernacles the, the, the priest would, would put in a, a, um, a, a golden pitcher water from that spring and would carry it up to the temple and every day would pour it out as an offering unto the Lord. It's a picture of him who was sent. So the one who was sent by the Father sent the man born blind to the pool called sent in order to emphasize the one who sent him was sent from the Father. So I think in my very simple-minded understanding, I think that the, the use of Jesus' saliva and dust to make mud to be placed on the man's face uh, was, was, was not, a, um, was, was not a, a, a beauty technique. It, it was all intended to get him to go to the pool of Siloam. Jesus had this one thing in mind. He wanted this blind man to know. He wanted all the people who saw this to know, even the people who read about it today, to know that he is the sent one that brings light into darkness. So he went away, verse 7. And he washed and he came back seeing. What was that like? You know what the faces of other people around you look like. You know what clothing looks like. You know what bread looks like. You know what a leaf looks like. You know what purple is. You know what blue is. You know what a cloud is. You've seen them all of your life. But this man, I wonder how long after he washed himself in that pool, I wonder how long he just stared there, stood there and stared. 
That's what a face looks like. That's, that's what a tree looks like. That's blue. People talk about how blue the sky is. Now I know. What was that like? I, I, I would imagine that he wanted to go say thank you to Jesus. He had a brief conversation with Jesus, but he'd never seen him. He didn't know who he was. And here he was, far away from the temple where he met Jesus, probably. And there are all these people around. Hmm. So he goes home. Point number four. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is the guy. Still others were saying, nah, now this is his doppelganger. This is the guy that's just kind of like his twin, you know, is the guy that's impersonating him. It was easier for them to believe that they found somebody who looked like the man, dressed like the man, talked like the man, was this guy's doppelganger. It was easier for them to believe that than Jesus healed this man. Why? Well, let me tell you why. Scripture declares that God is the one, God is the only one who heals the blind. Exodus 4. Who makes the dumb, duff and who makes the mute or deaf, the seeing or the blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God asks. Psalm 146. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And there is repeatedly this understanding that the, the Lord does this healing, this specific gift of healing. Healing the blind by the Messiah. It's the specific work of Messiah to bring sight to the blind. Here's one example. Isaiah 29. On that day, the day of Messiah's deliverance, the deaf will hear and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Did you know that there is no record in the Old Testament of any person blind given the ability to see? There's no blind person in the Old Testament that's healed. But when we look at the healings of Jesus, we could put them in a variety of different categories. When we, when we look at at that kind, that type, that class of healing that Jesus does, he heals blind people more frequently than anything else recorded for us. Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 7, John chapter 9. Jesus heals the blind. He's the only one who does. He does it with the full power and authority of Almighty God, just as the Old Testament declares. That's why these people had such a hard time wrapping their their mind around the fact that this, this, this blind beggar was healed. He'd been blind from birth. It wasn't as though he just had an eye infection and, he, and Jesus put some kind of special salve on there and, 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 the, and his eyesight came back. No. He never saw. And Jesus instantly gave him complete, accurate sight. How then were your eyes opened? 
verse 11, the man who was called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes. He said to go to, go to Siloam and wash. So I, I went and I washed and I see. My friends, there is a picture here for every person on planet Earth. We are all sinners. And we will get our due. Maybe not today. Can't make that assumption. We are all sinners. And, and, and as such, we are in the bondage of our spiritual blindness. And because of that, we, we can't do anything. We, we can't we can't grope enough to find our way out of this darkened world. Only by the initiative of God in Christ do we have any hope. We only can see when the Lord Jesus comes and opens our eyes. And it's then in response that, that we, uh, we are able to walk in the light and point others to the guy who opened up our eyes. This, this is a, a, a picture of God's gospel, his good news. And if you have never come to that point of putting your trust in Christ... You must. There is, no, there is no hope, there is no light anywhere but in Him. Most of you are walking in that light. And I want to say, say to you uh, a, a couple things re- regarding the, the difficulties and the afflictions and the, and the struggles that you may experience maybe in the past, maybe today. first word of exhortation I want to give you is, is don't, don't focus on the pain, the affliction, the difficulty. Focus on that one who is your light. Um, listen to the words of Fanny Crosby. This was her first poem that she read when she was eight years old. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved and in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind I cannot, and I won't. She didn't focus on her blindness. She didn't focus on the afflictions and the difficulties that she experienced. She fixed her mind, her attention on the Lord Jesus. We can do no less. Hebrews chapter 12 begins this way. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father, Consider him who endured such hostilities by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Much later in life, a well-meaning preacher, um, but a biblically insensitive one, made this remark to Fanny Crosby. 
He said, I think it's such a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. I want to slap the guy. Fanny Crosby responded quickly. She said, You know, if at birth I had been able to ask one thing, make one petition, it would have been that I would be born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Whatever your bad might be, however difficult, fix your eyes on him who is the light. Let's pray. Our blessed God, how we have been presented this morning with an encounter of your amazing love, kindness, grace, mercy. How we thank you, Father, for the faith of this man as we will see it unfold. Find in us those who similarly respond, who know that we are in darkness. We repent of all of our sin and all of the mess that we have made of our life, all the groping that we have done in that darkness. Find us believing in the light, seeking the light, that we might walk in him who is light. This we pray in the Savior's name.